three higher ed authors, 100 plus college and university presidents, dozens of actionable insights for academic leaders. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education is now available on Amazon. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to head up on the Edup Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salustio, back with you again in another episode here, fresh out of our experience at eLive, that's Elysian Live in New Orleans, back at the end of March. Uh, very exciting time to talk to leaders uh, using technology products, especially as the conversation around artificial intelligence continues to evolve and uh, we get what exposure to the to the almost you can't live without moments of of AI as you run things through ChatGPT and others. My favorite is Barely.ai for for anyone that has not used Barely.ai before. What I love about Barely is that if you pull up an article that you want to read, Barely runs over the top of it, and it's bear like a like a like a bear in the woods. B e a r l y, and you run it right over the top of this article you want to read, and it gives you an executive summary. So it tells you all about what this article is about, and you don't even need to read it. Uh, it gives you the executive summary um, so I can get through like 10 articles in about five minutes at breakfast and see which ones I decide to go further into and what they're about. Pretty cool. Uh, so these AI things are doing lots of, uh, lots of things for us. One way I suggest you don't use AI is um, to buy, go, that you actually go and buy my book that we just put out called Commencement, the Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education, which of course, as you know, because I've said it now a hundred times, is based upon the insights of the first 125 presidents we interviewed on this podcast, actually gave a presentation to a college, uh, Kate and I did uh, about a week ago, and there were 936 people that attended. So we were so flattered, honored, and humbled by the response of the book. Uh, but enough about me, uh, because you know I could sit here and talk for an hour about myself, but that's super narcissistic, and we won't, nobody wants to hear that. What I'm gonna do instead is bring in my guest co-host. Um, he hasn't been around in a while, um, in fact, he's, he's a ghost. He he's kind of shows up when he is, he is around and then he disappears and we've got him today. Ladies and gentlemen, he is John Farrar. He is the director of education at the small organization called Google. John, how are you? Uh, good Joe. Good to be back. Um, uh, John, where you been, man? Where you been? <laughs> we've been traveling all over the place. The demands for, you know, education, innovation, uh, never end, as you know, right? And so do. we've been traveling the country quite a bit, but it's good to be, uh, good to be grounded. I'm excited to go into ASU GSV next week to, uh, nice. to a bunch of other leaders there. And so, yeah, it's been a busy time, but it's always good to be back on the Ed Up experience. And I'm very excited about today's, uh, today's guest. Well, that's a great buildup, and I'm going to bring him right in because I know he's got a lot to say. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. He is Dr. Dick Sinise. He is the president at Capella University. Dick, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How are you both? You know, it's another day in paradise uh, over here. It is indeed. Another day um, on Zoom. That's it. Another day on Zoom. But you know what? A good way to be on Zoom with one another because we don't have to have a meeting. We get to have a podcast conversation all about you, Dick, and the work, more importantly, the work of Capella University. Mm -hmm. And uh, for, for those, let's just assume for a moment that somebody is here and hasn't heard of Capella University before. Sure. Let's act as if that is where we're starting. So tell us about Capella. What does Capella University do and how do you do it? Sure, sounds good. So Capella University was founded 30 years ago. So this is our 30th anniversary. Um, seems like a long time for us, but in the world of higher ed, we are still young and innovative. 
Um, Capella was founded to provide high quality education for working adults. Primarily we're a graduate school. So most of our learners are in master's or doctoral programs. We do have bachelor's programs as well. Um, and we have been focused on competency-based education long before it was a popular term. All of our curriculum is competency-based. We align the programs and the courses, all the learning outcomes, all the assignments, all the assessments are aligned to competencies that are expected in the workplace by those holding the credential they're studying for. Amazing. It is amazing. Thank you, Joe. I agree. It, um, we use authentic assessments. So no matter the format of the assessment, the assessment asks the learner to apply knowledge, skills, or professional and or professional dispositions to demonstrate their understanding of that competency, to demonstrate their ability to use what they've learned in some context, professional context, often obviously a simulated context in the course room. But um, we're really proud of all the work. Um, we have two learning formats. One is called Guided Path, which is a kind of traditional online, if we can call you know online traditional. Um, and then one is called FlexPath, which is also known as direct assessment. FlexPath has been around for a long time. You know, I'm, I've been in the industry for 20 plus years and I can't tell you, I mean, I can't tell you when FlexPath came in, you probably know better than me, but I do know that if somebody says FlexPath, I go, oh yeah, that's Capella. Mm -hmm. uh, so you've done a good job of branding that for adult students. So congratulations. Thank you. Talk about FlexPath and its importance to the adult student, um, why it's so valued. Sure. So FlexPath is 10 years old um, uh, this year. As a matter of fact, we started in 2013. Ah. And, yeah. And adult learners, you know, one of the greatest challenges adult learners have is they have life commitments that are not easily set aside um, so that they can adhere to the schedule of an institution like a traditional college experience may have been, or maybe that you went through or that I went through. So FlexPath really provides the maximum flexibility that we can while maintaining high quality competency-based curriculum and education. So for example, um, FlexPath is a format, so we have programs in GuidedPath and FlexPath. You know, when learners first enroll in a course, they take, the first thing they do actually is schedule themselves. So when are they going to complete the assignments, these competency demonstrations? So all of that is under their control. FlexPath uses a subscription model, so a 12-week period where a learner can be concurrently registered for up to two courses. So perhaps, you know, you go faster because you have um, either more time, maybe you're a teacher that, and you're doing this on a summer break or something, so you're able to go faster, or maybe you've been in bookkeeping your whole life, and so now you're getting a bachelor's in business, and those concepts you're learning are just coming a little bit easier for you in that particular course. Or maybe you go slower because you need a little more time because things in your life are going on, um, family events or just work events, or you just wanna go slower. So you can take the time and pace yourself how you'd like. And you know if you don't finish in that first subscription period, 
you can carry a course over to one more period. So it really maximizes flexibility, which increasingly in the lives of adult learners is more and more important as a value proposition. True. We agree. Um, and I'm going to hand it to John because he's been, knew he was excited to talk with you today, Dick. And, uh, you know, we're excited to get him back on. So no pressure, John, but your questions better be good. Uh, we'll do our, we'll do our best, Joe. Um, Dick, uh, you mentioned the competency-based learning, right? There's been a lot of, of chatter in the last several years about reskilling, upskilling for the workforce. I know you've got thoughts on this. I know there was an, an article from The Atlantic not that long ago that said 11% of employers feel like graduates are ready to go on, on day one. And I think it kind of speaks to some of the approaches that Capella is has taken historically and maybe is thinking about going forward. But how do you see universities playing a role um, maybe beyond traditional degree programs or how do they enhance existing degree programs to kind of hopefully shore up that gap for employers and um, make it so that when they get there on day one, they hit the learning curve even mm -hmm. harder? Yeah, those are really good good questions. I think there's a couple, couple things that we're doing and maybe higher ed could learn from more broadly and employers could take a closer look at. I think first, you know, is the competency uh, map itself. So in competency-based education, you identify a number of competencies for that program that people are expected to have. Then you backwards design those into courses, but it's never one and done, right? You have to scaffold the learning. So the same competency is represented in multiple courses at varying levels or various levels or different aspects of it. So it's not for the faint of heart to do this kind of curriculum design. And your faculty have to be deeply committed to it, right? And so if you have those going for you, you're able to have a robust assessment model of those competencies. You know, many places might use a either or kind of assessment, person met it or they didn't. We have four levels of uh, assessment on a competency demonstration. We have very clear guidelines and scoring guides about this so that employers can have confidence and learners can have confidence that what they're learning can be immediately applied. We actually ask our learners that question in the end of course evaluations. Can you apply what you've learned in this course to your workplace or your community, right? And in both cases, we get really high positive responses on those questions. So making that transparent to employers and learners helping learners understand sort of what they've learned, right? Bring them up to see the trees here in the forest and give them the tools to speak to employers. So we use a competency map that um, learners can, can use to discuss the competencies of the courses they're in. Our transcripts in the FlexPath model format list the competencies. So they could literally bring an unofficial transcript or an official one, I suppose, in with their boss and say, hey, here are the things I'm learning. How do you see this applying? And you can have a conversation then, right there and then with the employer. I think another thing that's really exciting that we are getting more and more um, interested in and trying pilots in is, you know, work embedded learning. How can people use opportunities that are in their workplace every day to either augment or help their learning journey, journey, and how can we recognize that within a course? It's not easy, right? Um, similar approach might be to set up, you know, like an internship or apprenticeships 
those kinds of things. But again, with adult learners, they have a lot of commitments they're balancing against. And their, their schedules are like a combination of, uh, you know, Jenga and Tetris or something, right? So yeah. adding one more thing, it better be really high quality and of value. I think it's a great point in terms of how much they're juggling and, and maybe that um, maybe there's a role for uh, universities to play uh, as it relates to my next question, which is, you know, the rise of short courses, certificates, mm -hmm. increasing, increasing, I guess, um, currency as qualification and some of those. Do you do you feel like there's um, we will see a time where we'll see more of that where, you know, potentially you graduate from Capella and you're also certified by maybe the top three um, or three of the leaders in the industry or vocation that you are, are pursuing. Do you, do you feel like that? I would love, I would love to see that, you know, we Capella is a leader in uh, credit for prior learning. So for example, there's this little organization you work for that has certain certifications, right? So if someone can demonstrate to us that they've earned that and we can verify that, that can count as coursework. Right, and it can count toward academic credit in their program. And anytime you give a returning adult learner recognition, credit for prior learning, that's motivational. All the research says those learners will do better. They will go. They will uh, persist better. Yes. Now, could we could we do the reverse? Of course we could. You know, like there's no reason. You know, John, you and I can't have a conversation about. Hey, here's what's happening in these courses. How about Google certify them? You know, just do it in the reverse, right. right? And and that kind of real partnership makes a ton of sense. Now, the other thing that people have to recognize is that learners live in, you know, economic sheds. People in, you know, the area of Minnesota where I grew up in, you know, are, you know, unlikely to work for some of the big national brands. It's a rural, remote, you know, relatively rural and a more remote area. So how do those employers in those areas learn about these things as well? And to the extent that we can provide transparency into the competencies, I think that gives learners the ability to have the conversation with employers. How do you keep that straight, Dick? Because that's a, that's a, this is one of the more common questions that we ask here. It's, it's an extension of what John asked, because when you're talking about a Google cert, right? We understand that yep. we use Google, there's brand recognition there. We know what it means, but the rest of the market, um, in credential engine is a, is an organization that kind of maps out different credentials and there's over a million, mm -hmm. um, for the learner and for the employer, unless you're a brand recognized certification and you've got the power behind you, there's a lot of uncertainty within the non-credit non space, the credentialing space. Be, one the good thing about higher education, one good thing, there's lots of good things, but people talk about some of the bad things that higher ed is, we're slow and whatever, it's easy to be critical, but there is structure. Whether you agree with that structure or not, you understand that if you do X, you end up with Y and so on. And in the other space and the non-credential space, skill stacking and otherwise, there isn't a lot of infrastructure around how to understand it for the student or for the employer, but we all know we need it. As a president, how do you keep your eyes on that and what the future is going to hold, knowing that there is a lot of confusion? Well, the way the way we do it is, you know, our the competency-based idea 
the idea that the curriculum should be competency-based and those competencies should be professionally relevant is deeply embedded in every aspect of Capella University. So when we do, when our faculty do program reviews, they're asking that question. When we build a course, we know what the evidence was that suggested to us that this competency was important. So we we have a well um, well structured approach to that. Our approach to assessment has been recognized two times now by the National Institute on Learning Outcomes for Learning Outcomes Assessment. Um, so I'm really confident about our approach to it. I think what what other what institutions of higher education need to learn is to to take all that input, all that information, discern it and distill it into manageable chunks of learning, right? And then, like you say, employers um, need to start using that language in the job descriptions. I mean, one source for us, quite frankly, are job descriptions. Mm. How do people describe jobs that require an MBA with a marketing specialization? Well, there's some, that's one possible source of evidence, right, that we can use. So that linkage is what's really hard. You know, there was a study, um, I forget exactly who was involved in it. I know UPSIA was, and they talked to employers about who do they trust to verify, right? Because that's the issue. Who is verifying this, right? Well, if Google's verifying it, I have, you know, much more confidence in it than an organization I've never heard of. But employers, in this study at least, and it was, wasn't a big national survey, it was kind of like interviews, they relied on themselves. They said the job interview, right? Which research shows is the least reliable way to assess someone's actual competency levels. Are you serious? So the more we can, um, the more we can talk about competency-based education, the more we can show the value of it, um, the more we can get schools to engage in direct assessment programs like FlexPath, which have some remarkable outcomes, you know, really remarkable outcomes on time to complete, on affordability, on all the things we care about. Um, I think we just need to keep the conversation going and, you know, find a way to provide incentives to employers and universities to work more closely together. Because that handoff between completing a credential of whatever size and scope to career outcome, there's a gap there in how that handoff works. You know that the world of higher education is experiencing evolutions and revolutions. You want to be part of the progress. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education with insights from more than 100 college and university presidents will show you how. Get your copy of Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education now on Amazon right away. We think you're going to love it. It's amazing. John. Yeah, Dick, I, um, look, I follow you on Twitter. <laughs> so you post some interesting stuff. Um, True. I'm going to go back to the adult learner. And, and one of the things that you did post on Twitter around networking, I always joke with people and they always, you know, sometimes you get that question. If you could talk to your 25 year old, 22 year old, yep. 18 year old self, what would you tell them? And I, 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 I would say like, be a better networker earlier, right? Um, oh, as, we talk yeah. about, as we talk about um, 
adult learners, though, to your point, there's a lot going on there. What do you think we can do as universities or maybe as employers to help on that front to encourage that kind of networking? So we, we have people exploring job possibilities via professionals in their disciplines while they're going to, to accomplish a degree and not just post-graduation or, you know, in the months immediately um, where they're trying, leading up to when they want to get employment. I, I know you've got some thoughts here. I would love to explore that with you. Well, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. If you can't tell, I'm a sort of very data-driven person. I'm a psychologist by training. And all the research shows that it's weak ties in social networks that help people advance in their careers and in even their sort of community involvement, right? So these weak ties are those acquaintances, right? A friend of a friend works here and you go and talk to them. Um, we do a lot to promote the concept of informational interviewing amongst our learners. So we're doing a career strategy week coming up here soon. And we're gonna feature uh, an alumna of Capella University who's a noted executive recruiter and has written a book on the 20 minute informational interview. And, you know, we, she's done a talk for us that we recorded, we're, we give it to learners. You know, I'm hoping that we find ways to build those kinds of activities into the curriculum, right? You have to take a sort of curricular lens on it. So it's not, you know, career development work per se, but if you're gonna get award academic credit, but there is a way to do that, right? And I think employers, you know, need to recognize that in today's world, people's loyalty to stay with an employer is shorter and shorter. Giving people a little bit of opportunity, creating the expectation that they network, not to look for another job, but just to keep their eye on the horizon of their field. That's really important. And the power of these informational interviews is really strong. And, you know, I completely agree with you. The power of, of weak ties, of social networking, it really can almost not be understated on the impact on people's lives. Yeah, um, I sit on a, a couple of business school boards and we talk about um, what people generally refer to as soft skills. I, I mm -hmm. kind of hope we rename them as success skills because I really feel like that's, that is what we're talking about here, networking chief among them. Um, uh, and, and understanding kind of how to navigate certain situations, work in teams, what have you. But I feel like networking can help shape a lot of those yep. skills through through mentorship and um, and guidance. Um, yeah, completely, completely with you there. Um, you want to show you got Well, I was going to say, what do we call those, Dick? With soft skills, success skills, power skills? You know, we don't need to rename everything. We could just call them interpersonal skills, like we did when I taught interpersonal communication a long time ago. That was, yeah, I mean, right. They're just they, interpersonal skills. They're people skills. You know, like, like um, we know that any group depends on two categories of behavior for success. One is task-oriented behaviors, like you got to get the thing done. But the other is called maintenance behaviors. It's all these interpersonal skills, right? And the value of that is really important because it doesn't, you don't get much time to make a first impression. You know, one of the things that, that we're doing at Capella is really focusing on decreasing the interpersonal distance between faculty and learners, learners and learners, um, so that we, so that even though we are distance education, al almost all asynchronous, 
except in a handful of cases, we still want to decrease that interpersonal distance. So, so people know that there's an actual human on the other end of the technology, right? Because that is what is going to motivate any of us, is human connection. Right? Is that the faculty presence or the social presence within the classroom? The That's a part of it. It's social presence because that means I care. If I show up, I care. If a friend shows up for you, Joe, you know that friend cares, right? If they do what they said they were going to do in the time they said they were going to do it in. If they notice, you know, our faculty, we have some proprietary tools that allow faculty to know um, if a learner has maybe is um, late on an assignment or that sort of thing and can faculty can send a video to them, you know, and some of our faculty have been very creative. It's kind of like a Where's Waldo kind of video I remember seeing because we did a little um, a demonstration, sort of a mini Academy Awards kind of thing, right, for some of these videos. But there are literally thousands and thousands of these videos that faculty are producing because it's fun for them too. And learners can see the caring and the motivation of the faculty. So I think I think we do need to focus on those those skills. Um, I think we need to to not to just recognize they are you know as important in many cases. And and once you have a certain level of technical proficiency, then that becomes the differentiator. That's why they're more important, right? The statistician in me says it accounts for more of the variance, right? So it becomes yeah. more important. Huh? Yeah. I, um, I missed the variance part. I guess I just selfishly wish we celebrated it more, right? Yeah. I, th I think the stat from employers is um, those soft skills, or I, maybe I'll start using your term of interpersonal skills, are the things that their employee base needs the most on, right? Yeah. And I, I do feel like we focus a lot on maybe hard skills or a lot on, you know, STEM occupations, what have you, but it is still those interpersonal skills that make uh, organizations go and make individuals successful within their capacities. And employers have that opportunity to develop, you know, to develop professional development programs that emphasize those. It doesn't have to be that difficult or onerous, right? I mean, first, supervisors need to be able to have crucial conversations about letting, letting folks know what's going well and letting folks know where maybe there are areas to improve. You know, um, Now, we've built a number of employability skills into our general education curriculum. Um, you know, For us, most of our undergraduate learners come with a lot or all of their general educations completed. But still, we wanted to make sure that if you were going to complete your general education curriculum at Capella, you were exposed to um, employability skills. Dick, do you think the you, you got my mind turning a little bit because I'm thinking about your exchange with John and, and interpersonal skills, let's just say interpersonal skills. Was there ever a time where those weren't the most important skills and why were they minimized and now maybe need more attention? Was it the tech boom that pushed a bunch of people into technical training and hard skills? And, you know, I, I, I almost I think backwards and go, at what point did we lose focus on those success skills to, to the point where we need to bring them front and center so much? They, they probably always existed at managerial and above levels in organizations. Hmm. Um, I think as you move from an industrial age to an information age, you know, you can imagine that um, 
you know, somebody who's working a production line and has a certain task to perform in a very sort of replicable way, maybe the interpersonal skills are less needed or valuable in that role. But as you move into the information age, and, you know, many, many more jobs, entry-level jobs and jobs slightly above entry-level require, you know, discernment, human communication, interaction, the ability to read a room, some ability, some amount of emotional intelligence. Nailed it. You know, that, that changes what's, what the expectation is and what the differentiator is for um, employee success and professional success. That would be my supposition. It's interesting, right? Um, I want to go backwards to talk about PLA a little bit, prior learning assessment or credit for prior learning. One of the, you know, as you know, Dick, because you're you're well up to date on what's happening in higher ed, everybody, and not everybody, but I say as a generalization, many are moving in to try to serve 39 million students with some college and no degree because... You have a declining birth rate. You know, the enrollment cliff is coming. There's less 18-year-olds going to college, blah, 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 blah. We know all those things. Um, I think there is a, um, a, a lack of understanding on what it takes to serve that population, where you don't just wake up one day and go, oh, wow, we're used to serving this student, and now we're, we're going to start serving these adult students over here. There's so many changes that have to take place, even to the point of realizing that if you aren't going to grant prior learning to a student in the form of credit, you could be offending them in a certain way where they go, what do you mean you don't value my X years in this business? You're not going to give me anything for it. I'm going to go to Capella because Capella will. And so there's this lack, I feel like, of a general, everybody wants to do it but it's not everybody can serve an adult student because the policies are different, the cadences are different, the replication schedules are different, the expectations are different. What, what do you have to say about that? You've been doing this for a long time. I mean, I, I, two things. First, I think you're absolutely right. In an institution of higher education that wants to serve adult learners needs to take an honest look at itself from the outside in. What does it look like from an, from an adult learner's perspective? Everything from the imagery on the websites to the kinds of policies you're talking about, the scheduling of courses, the flexibility that's allowable, are all the online courses um, asynchronous or synchronous? You know, are you doing this, um, you know, hyperflex where you, I met with a, a colleague at a local community college the other day and all of their courses now you can do either at the student's choice, go to an in-person session, do something synchronously online, or do something asynchronously throughout the term. Ah. You can just vary those things. So I think that is a really creative and very difficult thing to pull off um, for a lot of reasons. So you have to look at the culture and what are you doing to create a culture that learns to see things that way, right? Um, you know, what, what do you call things? Like, do you do you stand behind, you know, at a liberal arts college I used to teach at, you know, learners would call me Professor Sinise, students would call me 
Professor Sinise, right? That creates a little bit of distance. I taught at an adult serving institution in a face-to-face -face environment for a number of years and nobody did that. We we're very informal. We actually met in office buildings, conference rooms at night, right? All those things. One other point I wanna go back to though, Joe, is the example you used was somebody who had a lot of grit is mm. they were kind of offended, right? And it activated this kind of energy, like I'm not gonna put up with that. I'm gonna go find someone else. So, so while I, while I wanna help that person, I worry more about the person who uses that, hears that message and they're deflated. Yes. They can't, they lose hope, right? We often talk about time and money, but hope is really what drives most of us, right? Most of our actions are hope-based, like some kind of future motivating state, right? And you take that away from someone, that's, that to me is, is really a, a, a harmful thing to do to somebody who can otherwise succeed. Yeah, it's such a good point because you know a big part of serving students from a retention standpoint is confidence building. Mm -hmm. and, and I've talked about this before, you're building confidence, right? The the right. reason for wanting to take a stop out or quit school is um, associated with some type of an event, like I had this come up and now I can't do this, or exactly. this assignment got too hard or I can't do that, or I had an interaction with somebody that made me do this. And to save that student most of the time, you're it's psychological. It's if you quit mm -hmm. on yourself then, you know, don't let the, don't quit on yourself or, um, right. And if you don't understand the, the adult student and what they're dealing with on a daily basis and how those policies, how they interact with policies and procedures around your university, you just end up losing them exactly. because you know what I mean? They just disappear and, and there's no, there's less loyalty because their loyalty is to a family and kids sometimes. And so it's like, well, I've got to do what I got to do. It's just a lot harder than people think it is in higher education. We're seeing so many try now but it's, there's infrastructure that has to be built. There, infrastructure and culture change, right? Yeah. And for adult learners, you know, someone who's successful in their career, um, they're highly competent, they're an independent actor, right? And then they get treated like, um, like they're incompetent somehow. Ah! You know, and that's, that can be, you know, from my own personal experience, let me tell you, that can be really frustrating. You know, I um, served as an aide to a U.S. senator um, and had, you know, access to lots of material, documents, all kinds of things. And in one of my, when I returned to school, I needed to, like, bring, this is way back when, right? I needed to bring this form. This form had to get from one building to another building by the end of the day. Well, intercampus mail was not going to do it. Yikes! I was actually on crutches. Yikes. I said, I'll do it. Oh, I can't give you this form. Yikes. I'm like, I returned from being an aide to a U.S. senator. I've had access to confidential documents in the government. I think I can carry this form from one place to another. You know, and ultimately access I won that argument. But, you know, I, I have a certain amount of uh, grit and persistence in me. I bet you do. Go ahead, John. I know we're, we're, the time is flying here. Uh, so I, I've got one more question, Dick. Um, we run a lot of survey data against students um, at Google and over the, the overwhelming majority of students now say that um, 
they're making university choices based on how big DEI is as a part of the overall strategic mm -hmm. plan of their, their institution, right? Um, we know Capella has been a leader on this front. I hear you and, and see you post a lot about it. What, what more can we be done? What, what is Capella doing? What does the future look like for Capella on that front? And what do you think universities need to be thinking about as a, you know, as an ecosystem um, uh, on the DEI? Uh, sure. That's three questions. It's a lot of I questions, know. but it's, it's a, a big, lot. it's a big important area. Um, you know, thanks for your comment about Capella. We are doing a lot. Um, I'm, you know, been involved in civil and human rights activities um, most of my adult life. I'm a, a officer and board member of LGBTQ leaders in higher ed. Um, but we need to do more, right? I mean, I, um, we saw the whole nation saw what happened a mile from where I live when George Floyd was murdered, and the ensuing. Um, uh, call for justice, the ensuing call for actual work on these issues. And one thing I always want to do is die, is take apart the acronym DEI because then it becomes an empty word, right? You're talking about ensuring that there, there's a diversity of people, meaning certainly we want to look at you know racial, ethnic diversity, age diversity, diversity with regard to ability, diversity with regard to a whole number of things, right? Because all of us have an intersectional identity. You know, all of us do. And we have to recognize and honor that. And we have to be committed to that. Then we have to be committed to inclusive culture. So that if somebody is a leader in because of their cultural background, for example, that culture's view of leadership is leading from behind or from the middle. That person doesn't get lost in the hyper macho kind of uh, leadership profiles that, that we can become accustomed to. And then lastly, equity, right? We have to really know what we mean by that, right? There's equitable outcomes, you know, whether that's in your organization around salary, promotion, or as a university with regard to um, uh, learner profiles. One of the things that was really great about our uh, recent study we did on FlexPath is we saw that in, you know, we, have, we now have 20,000 graduates of FlexPath, right? And we looked at our, our ability to state claims on time to complete and affordability. And we saw that FlexPath benefited both learners who have self-identify as white and learners who self-identify as black. Fantastic. Right? And we did that in a, as you might imagine from my earlier comment on variance, we used a statistical approach that allowed for qualified comparisons. Um, but the point is you have to be willing to look at that and you have to be willing to look yourself in the mirror and say, what can we do? What can I do more of? It means again, looking from the outside in. If somebody with, uh, you know, who comes from a very diverse background or uh, looks at Capella, what does the curriculum look like? What are the examples used in our human service courses, right? What are the names that are used in the assessments? What's it like for someone who says, for someone who hears, oh, your name is too hard to pronounce, right? All of these things matter. They all send messages. And we have to look very carefully at all of it. And I am proud of our work. We have a fantastic chief diversity officer at Capella. 
We have a very active and engaged um, employee base. We have a commission on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion that are working across various work streams, you know, with clear metrics and outcome goals. So all of that work is really important. It, it just can never be lip service and it can never be glossed over because you want to talk about interpersonal work, you know, being able to have honest, real conversation about the inclusivity of the workplace with somebody and creating a space for someone who has been in a power down position in their, in their, in their whole life feels free to say, hey, I didn't feel included. You know, if you can get to that point, you've really accomplished something. 100%. We love that. Thank you for that, Dick. And we, we have two final questions that we ask of every single guest. Number one, what did we not say about Capella University that needs to be said today? Anything that you were hoping you get out that we just, you know, John takes, sometimes he goes down these rabbit holes of questions and he just leads people in the wrong direction. No, he's, he's great. But uh, anything that you want to say, the mic is yours to plug your staff, uh, new programs, yeah. anything you want. And then uh, talk to us about what you think the future of higher education holds. All right. Sounds good. Um, I think the things we touched on but deserve emphasis is the incredible outcomes we're seeing with FlexPath in terms of, you know, 50% of the bachelor's folks in FlexPath are going faster than their uh, guided path counterparts. About 36% are going faster in master's programs than their guided path counterparts. And the amount of money they're saving and the amount of, of uh, borrowing lower that's happening, the lowered borrowing rate in FlexPath you know, pushes 60%, 58% for bachelor's programs and the bond of borrowing uh, and the actual build tuition is far less. So that's Amazing. thing one. Thing two about Capella is we do have a lot of employer partnerships. And that's another way that we learn um, about what is a professionally relevant competency. We have over 800 partners um, and we do some incredible work in the communities as well, in communities. Uh, through our uh, fellows program and other efforts. So that's really exciting. I think higher ed, you know, higher ed has often been a siloed sector away from other sectors, right? Um, it's been a bit rarefied in that way, you know? I think uh, institutions of higher ed have to embed themselves in their communities, whether that's like in the case of Capella, professional communities, right? Because we don't have lo physical locations or physical locations, you know, gone, gone are the days when, when higher education can um, just look at its own programs and be self-satisfied with having programs and graduates, right? We have to understand how our work helps or hinders people's ability to be successful in professions and in their communities and understand the powerful contribution we can make and the awesome responsibility we have to do well by that. Um, and I think, I think the current conversations are moving in that direction, which is exciting to see. Um, I just hope it moves a little bit faster. I think we all do, which, uh, it, which is why we have these conversations here on the Edip Experience podcast. How do you like that for a transition? <laughs> Let me out, outro my, my guest co-host first. You know him, you love him. 
He's John Farrar. He's the Director of Education at Google. John, welcome back. I know we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Joe. Great uh, talking with you, Dick. Thanks so much. Thank you. And our guest, your guest, he is Dr. Dick Sinise. He is the president at Capella University. Dick, did you have a good time today here on EdUp? I had a great time, Joe. Anytime. Willing to come on anytime. Uh, we love it. We love you. With that, ladies and gentlemen, you've just EdUpped. It's time to level up. The beginning of a new era in higher education begins with you. Order your copy of Commencement. The beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert, Dr. Joseph Lucille, with contributions by Elvin Freitas. It's higher education's must-read book of 2022. Discover how you can seize the moment to change higher education forever. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education, now available on Amazon. For bulk orders, contact Kate, Joe, or Elvin. 